Hey, it's Simba Kader here with the MLOps Weekly Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Liren Hassan, the CEO and co-founder of Aporian. He's a veteran of the IDF's Elite 81 Intelligence Unit. He was one of the first employees of Adelong, which was acquired by Microsoft, and he led the ML production architecture that served millions of users. Before starting Aporia, he was part of Vertex Ventures investment team and was involved in over 30 investments, including Axonios, Spot.io, and others. Hey, Liren. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, hey, Simba. Thanks for having me. I'd love to uh, start, I give a little intro on you, but I'd love to yeah, learn a bit about how you got to where you are today of running Aporia. Sure. So I spent over 20 years in software engineering, you know, across different roles. In one of the last companies that I worked at, I was leading and I was responsible for the architecture of our ML infrastructure, uh, really everything from training, packaging, deployment, serving, and monitoring as well. We were running models at scale and we got to a point where we had to have some kind of monitoring solution. So really what we did is just implemented some Python scripts running on cron job, nothing very, very fancy to be honest, but it was good. And I just realized that you know there has to be one centralized solution to track your models, to have dashboards, to get proactive alerts. So you shouldn't really implement this Python script, which we're scraping. So that's kind of how Aporia came to life. It's uh, uh, something you've built before and now you're taking to market as a vendor. I guess maybe for some timeline, like when did you start Aporia? Like when did you build the original monitoring solution internally? And, and when did Aporia kind of begin? This monitoring solution we built it internally well, it was a long time ago. It was 2015. It was at a startup company that was later acquired by Microsoft. And then, then to be honest, so I moved to the evil side of the VC, investing in some companies, spent about three years in there. And then I just realized that more and more data science and ML teams are facing these issues. So I realized that it might be a good timing to you know, make this product and to, give it to, to make it to life. So this was 2018. That's where I left my role at the VC to start working at Aporia, and by 2019, that's where we raised our first funding round. Glad to have you back from the from the dark side. <laughs> so I guess like since starting in 2019, I guess over the last, especially like a couple of years, I'd love to understand how you've seen the ML changing, like how people do ML, who's doing ML. And yeah, let's start there. I really want to understand how things are changing over the last couple of years and also like where things are going. Sure. So... Looking backward, like three years ago, I think few people used to use the term MLOps, right? But in the last three years, I think that like we clearly see more and more companies building their MLOps practice. I think that a lot of companies have invested so much time and effort in collecting data and also building data science teams, but they have yet to realize the full value of their models. And in the last few years, they realized that the core missing part is really having a proper infrastructure for that. And that's when they started hiring ML engineers and building their ML platform teams to create this centralized infrastructure. So this is one thing we see. I believe one more interesting trend in the market that I I see is as the market, the MLOps market is maturing, we see more categories being formed. 
right? So if beforehand you could find some tools trying to do all sorts of things in one platform, now you can see some specialized tools like feature stores, like ML observability platforms, like experiments tracking. And I think it's a great sign for the market because by the end of the day, similar to the software engineering space, every company has different needs. So when it comes to building and deciding on your tech stack, whether it's machine learning or not, you have to be able to choose what's best for your needs. And in that case, having the ability to choose the best feature store, the best observability platform, this really allows organizations to build a great ML platforms internally. Do you think that trend of unbundling, because if you zoom back, like, you know, the companies in the wave before us, companies like DataRobot, Domino, et cetera, like they all started really building the end-to-end MLS platform. And like you said, over this last generation of company that, I mean, you know, both Emporium and FeatureForm kind of fit into, there has been this trend towards unbundling, like best-in-class components that you fit together based on your needs. Do you think that will continue? Do you think there'll be more unbundling? Do you think, especially now if the market's looking a little shakier, there'll be more consolidation? How do you see things changing over the future? Oh, definitely. So I think we can just take a look on the development or software engineering space, right? You wouldn't find that term of dev platform. Maybe GitLab is trying to become one, and GitHub, but they didn't start there. And, and I definitely see the same thing in our world of the MLOps, obviously there's a room for a company like Data Robot and Domino and others. But I think what we start to see is that there is kind of segregation to what companies and what teams and stakeholders are using and buying platforms solutions versus best of breed. I think if when you look on specialized data science teams that really take the data, build their own models like with their bare hands and they understand exactly what they're doing, yes, they have to have specialized tools. So I definitely see this trend of best of breed tooling getting and growing over time. And I do expect to see, by the way, more categories than we have today. Yeah, I think that's true. I love to use the DevOps market as an analogy to the MLOps market. And I think my sense of why this is happening because if you look at early days of DevOps, there were attempts, more attempts. You could argue App Engine, Parse.com, all those sorts of companies were really trying to build the all-in-one DevOps platform. Most of those have pivoted away or don't exist anymore. I think a lot of what I've seen, especially in ML, is everyone has such different pain points. Like if you're doing computer vision and you're a large enterprise or you're fraud detection at a startup, problems you face are different. And the MLOps like vendors you need, or let's say like observability versus feature store. Like based on what you're doing, you might eventually you need both. But in the early days, like maybe you hit problems where observability is required first. You know, and it's like, hey, we can get away with kind of our hacky thing for the feature store, but we need observability now. Or vice versa. Where it's like, hey, like all we're like the data processing, our data pipelines are all screwed up. We need the feature store observability based on what we're doing, like, you know, we can get away with something ad hoc for, you know, like another six months or whatever. Do you buy that? Is that how you see it? Is it just based on like the complexity of use cases or do you think there's more to it than that? 
I agree with you. Yeah, by the end of the day, it's a lot about the different use cases. Yes, if I'm developing recommender system as part of an e-commerce website, I need to deal with real-time, large scale of data. That's one thing. If, on the other hand, I'm developing uh, offline models running in batch, let's say one every six months, well, I need whole different infrastructure for that, right? And priorities will change accordingly. As you said, is it feature store beforehand or observability? But also when you think about it, right, there is so much depth in each of these areas, right? Like in feature store, there is time travel, there is uh, how do you do collaboration, how do you do security and access, how do you serve the same features for training and like there's so many aspects just in feature store. And the same thing happens with observability, right? How do I create dashboarding? How do I create effective monitoring system and alerting? How do I actually allow users to learn in and gain insights from production data on how to improve their models? So it's a whole world and there is so much depth to it. So I don't believe there could be one platform that could be could do everything greatly. That's kind of the way the way I think about it. One thing I'd love to zoom in on, a question I've been asked before on the observability side. And I'm sure you're going to have a better answer than me because it's, it's what you think about all the time. People ask me about, hey, like I use, let's say, Prometheus and Grafana for my DevOps monitoring and observability um, or whatever. Like I have this DevOps tooling. They're trying to understand why models are so different. Now, there's a lot of like obvious things, but I'd love to hear in your words, like why does this category need to exist? Why does it differentiate so much from like kind of traditional monitoring? that it requires a, a specialized tool? It's a great question. First and foremost, as an engineer, I tend not to reinvent the wheel if there is no need to do that. I can share with you, Simba, that even at Aporia, we were thinking about maybe we can use Grafana internally, right? Like, let's not spend, waste time on things that were already implemented very, very well. So why is it so different monitoring models versus monitoring traditional application workloads. So when you think about Grafana, essentially what is, is monitoring with Prometheus is metrics, right? It could be CPU, memory, and so on and so forth. With machine learning, when you want to monitor your model, what, what do you essentially want to do is, one, you want to track performance, but usually it takes a lot of time until we get ground truth in production. It could be in a few weeks, it could be in a few months, right? So in the meantime, until you get this data, like the ground truth and the labels, you need to have some proxy metrics. So what you do is you calculate data drift and other proxy metrics. Now, just the logic of calculating these metrics, even calculating accurate, let's say you do have ground truth and you want to track accuracy or F1 score on your production data, you need to set up some ETL that will take this data, take the ground truth that is being received with delay, calculating accuracy historically, putting it in one place, and then sending it to Grafana. So it's not as easy as you might think, especially when dealing with large scale of data. And this is just only one aspect of it. So once you even, let's say you've done that, and in reality, there are plenty of more edge cases that I'm not getting into right now. What you'll find is you just end up with some pre-dashboard in Grafana, but it just looks and analyzes the data on a very, very high level. In reality, 
a lot of times the issues surface more in specific segments of your data. And this is something you can't really do with Grafana, like how my model is performing for people at the state of California versus people at New York, for example. All these kinds of things becomes much, much more complex. And one more point here is, so we're not tracking metrics anymore. We're not tracking logs. We are tracking data. We're tracking the inputs, the feature vector getting into the model, as well as their predictions. So I hope it makes more sense, like why is it different and why you, you can use Grafana, but we're very, very limited as compared to other observ- like dedicated observability tools for machine learning. Yeah, it makes sense. The way I think about it is you're trying to understand why the model is doing what it's doing and understand and observe when, when it's doing something strange. And it's a lot more nuanced than, let's say, a server where it's like, hey, it's you know not responding to requests. It's not working. So I think it's also the complexity of what correct is changes of, a, of an application, it's pretty obvious when it's correct, right? It's, it's doing, I mean, just you can go look at the code. Like if it's not doing something correctly, there's probably a bug. What does a bug even mean, you know, in a model is, is a whole different question where I think observability becomes a core part as we move closer and closer to like true understanding of what the models are doing. I want to zoom out a little bit. You mentioned a bit about you know, the creation of MLOps as a category. Uh, I have a similar story where I built a whole MLOps platform for my last company. It wasn't called MLOps. I don't even know what we called it. People asked me, it just was like, oh yeah, our data platform, which is now a feature store and our observability, I think we just called it that, like our observability. Like it wasn't model observability, it was just observability, but for the models. So, you know, part of that is like you said, there's an explosion of data scientists. People understood and saw the promise of ML. They hired a ton of data scientists they were building models. They'd never put anything, you know, model in production before. The company and organizations themselves hadn't really done that before. And this kind of grew into the explosion of MLOps of like, cool, we know how to build models. How do we actually build a system around models? Kind of operationalize, literally, MLOps models. I guess one thing we've talked a little bit about before and I've seen you've talked about is this idea of an ML product and kind of getting to that next level of, cool, now we can get models in production. Well, there's almost all these questions of, well, why? And what models should we put in production? I'd love to first get your definition of, of how to think in terms of an ML product, what that means. And yeah, let's start there. You mentioned before that companies are now really focusing on operationalizing their models. And, and I'll use a, another word that is similar but yet different, which is how do we productionize these models? So I think a lot of a lot of data science teams and organizations find themselves developing models. Probably they have artifacts lying somewhere. Maybe they even run them on inference. But are the business stakeholders are familiar with the results, with the business impact that these models are making? Right? Like This is a huge question. These data science teams and these ML engineering teams, they were built in order to achieve some goals for the company. Now, they might be doing extremely well, but how well is this information, is this success being shared with other stakeholders? So that's where I see a lot of our clients and more and more ML teams shifting their mindset really, as you said, from building machine learning models to building machine learning products. And when I talk, so what's the difference? It's not just 
terminology or buzzwords. I, I'm not a huge fan of buzzwords. So let's talk what is, what is an ML product. An ML product, like the broad definition, is a software product that facilitates an end goal of a user base through the use of machine learning. So the machine learning model is a core part of the ML product. But now in addition to the model, we've added a couple of more parts, which is one, we have, this is a software product. Number two, there is an end goal. And number three, we have a base of users which we want to satisfy. And this means we need to think more on the large picture when it comes to building ML products instead of building ML models. Do you think that role, like, I guess, there's this concept of a data scientist and the data scientist today, depends on the company, but arguably they used to just do everything. Like the data ends, they put them to production, they like were working notebooks, they did everything. Do you think that this idea of the ML product thinking is going to be something that takes traditional roles? Like, hey, like you still have software engineers, you still have PMs, they just, everyone does ML everywhere. Or do you think there'll be kind of a specialization? There's like MLPMs. What's your thinking there? So let's start with today. Today, in most cases, well, there are some MLPMs. And I'm really jealous with the, with, on, with the, on the teams that have this kind of functionality. I think that's really amazing. But in most organizations, what you'll find is that either the head of data science or data science the lead, the one actually performing this role in practice. So going forward, I do believe, and as we see more and more MLPMs and we see more ML engineers, right? Like M, the job position of ML engineer is one of the most sought after jobs in the US today. I definitely see over time, I expect to see at least more demand for MLPMs. What is the exact definition or what is the exact background and skill set needed for that role? It's going to be a very interesting question. Right, because it's a combination of having people skills as product manager, being able to look on the large picture, as well as to understand data scientists and to really translate business needs into data science metrics. Quick example, let's say I'm a data scientist at Uber Eats, and I was tasked with predicting how long it's going to take for a delivery. Right? An important question to ask from product management perspective. What are we trying to solve? Do we want to have an exact time frame on the matter of seconds? Like, is it going to take 700 seconds to get the delivery? And then we're talking about regression problem? Or are we talking about classification where we just want to know it's between 5 to 10 minutes? Now, this reduces a whole complexity from building a model here. But asking these kind of questions and then translating them into machine learning related metrics like what is the F1 score we're aiming to or what is the accuracy. Having this ability, I think it requires a lot and it's going to be interesting what kind of people are going to take these roles. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, the product managers in general are almost like glue, like they combine different parts of the company. They typically spend a lot of time speaking different languages. Like to a data scientist, you might you know need to specify it one way when you go talk to head of whatever, or chief revenue officer, you'll frame it a different way, or CFO, you frame it a different way. You talk to an end user a different way. And I think it's someone who can glue all those things together, speak all those different languages, and then translate as needed 
to, to make sure that everyone focuses on their specialties and they make sure it all kind of fits together. Is that kind of how to, to frame or think about the MLPM role? Yeah, absolutely. Now, the main question is, until we'll have plenty of them, if we will get there, what should we do, right? Like what should data science team do? And I was just last week was talking with a group of other, other lead data scientists about how can we better connect the work we're doing with the business value and how can we better communicate it to other stakeholders. It could be the marketing manager, it could be other stakeholders. So I think it's really an interesting problem that needs to be solved. I agree. I think it's really interesting to see how org structures change. I mean, even if you look back in early ML, like an enterprise, it used to all live under one VP. Like it used to be very silent. Like there was the ML team. And over time, I've been seeing more and more data scientists just get kind of thrown in different organizations. They're still a little bit siloed. I think historically, ML used to exist in silos. There was like one VP and they had their ML project and it was almost like a proof of concept. Over time, a lot of us have been successful and we've seen data scientists. Recently, when I go talk to larger organizations, they have data scientists in lots of different places. Like every org kind of has a data science team. And I think more and more, you will see data scientists kind of thrown in like a software engineering team typically we'll have a DevOps person or a few DevOps people. And I think data scientists will also begin to kind of fit in to these pods. So it'll be, you know, let's say N software engineers per M, you know, DevOps engineers per, you know, X data scientists. And I think as that happens, yeah, there will need to be this familiarity and context switching and just thinking. I just think ML in general is just going to become so, such a huge part of, it makes sense. It's like productivity per headcount is increasing when people are really doing ML well. Because ML, it used to be software, and now that software has kind of become, everyone can do it. The next value creation to be created is taking data and building, I guess, an engine to continuously drive more end user value. Do you see ML continuing to grow? Do you see people, I guess, given the ML product thinking, do you think there needs to be more ML products? Do you think that you know we need to be more clear about what we're doing with the products today? How do you see, I guess, the growth of ML and the data science role over the next few years? Sure. So I believe there is a huge space to fill in with the mindset and thinking of ML product. A few weeks ago, we shared our framework for great ML products. So really, it's how to be you know, user-focused and goal-driven. One of the things that I mentioned is how do you visualize from the very beginning, right? Like at the beginning of machine learning project, I highly believe that you should be thinking at the end result and visualize it in your mind, but not only in your mind, in a shareable place with other people and other colleagues. So just to give an example, let's say that we're, we're being tasked with building a recommender system for an e-commerce website. So how does the end result looks like, right? Where exactly on the website are my recommendations are going to be presented? What exactly is going to be presented? Is it just an image of the product? Is it also include the price and so on? So I highly recommend using simple tools. I like simplicity. 
There's a great tool called Excalibur, for example. It's kind of online whiteboard. Very, very simple to use. It's free just to mock up some high-level wireframe of how it's going to look like. In other cases, when we build machine learning models, the end result is not really kind of web interface or not something visual. And still, I believe you can visualize that. So what do I mean? Maybe there's another microservice consuming predictions for my model by calling REST API. So then you should be asking yourself, how does that REST API look like? What are the endpoints? What parameters can it get? What are edge cases that can my model and that can, can I expect from my model? And how do I deal with all of that? So really by thinking about the end result, you can really make sure you're aligned on the right goal from the very beginning of the project. And this is just one example of one principle from the framework that I believe, and we saw it so many times, once you follow these steps and these principles, you end up with more success at the end of the project. And this applies also to something, let's say, like fraud detection. In that case, the PM or whoever, the product thinking would go into the API, like you were saying. Yeah, exactly. Like in fraud detection, also, what's what's a good case? What's like when we think about fraud detection model, and we think about the end result and how the RML our fraud detection ML product is going to look like and operate at the end of the day. So, what happens, for example, when our model is identifying or classifying a transaction as fraud? Does that mean a transaction is getting blocked? Does that mean the transaction is getting, maybe the user get notified? So this is important because that also allows us when thinking about goals and metrics. So one of the principles is measure. And I like to think and set three different types of goals for these kind of projects. One is business-related metrics. So in terms of fraud, it could be chargebacks. So this is one. Number two is usage. When we build a model, it usually takes a long time. How many people are using it? How many transactions are going through my model from my fraud detection model? And the last part, but also very important, is by deriving from the business goals, what are the data science KPIs? Yeah, this definitely also ties to credit risk, fraud detection, and plenty of other use cases. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. I really like that framework of understanding the model beyond just, hey, like this is what it predicts, but like truly how does that fit into everything and what does success look like? I want to take the conversation somewhere else because a lot of this is making me think of kind of the current big focus and, and, and hype, especially around ML, has been all the new gen dev models, foundational models. I'm curious to if this concept fits into your framework do you think it will change anything of how we think about ML? Or do you think, yeah, how do you think that that will shake up the ecosystem of how companies do ML? Oh, are you asking about the framework or the generative AI? Sorry, I missed that. Yeah, specifically like generative AI, foundational models. I'm curious to how, because when I, when I think of ML product, I guess something that also comes to mind is a lot of companies are taking, let's say like an open AI API and they're essentially trying to build a product around it. It's very, it seems very like ML product heavy. Is that true? Do you think that gener- like kind of all these new foundational models are going to change how we think about ML, how enterprises do ML, or, or how do you think it's going to change things going forward? 
So that's a super interesting question. I don't think that I have the answer. I have only my humble opinion here. But I do think that, you know, these kind of generative models are pretty much changing the, the world that we are living in in so many ways. I think ChatGPT, for example, is, is just one and pretty much one of the first great examples for that. And also, when you look at ChatGPT, it's not the first, the first of its kind, right? You can find other examples in other companies that came up with very, very similar models. But what made ChatGPT so successful other than the pretty much crazy results and performance that they have is also the, the accessibility of it as a product. Like, it's as easy as now going to, you know, chat.openai.com, sign up with your Google account, write down your prompt and you'll get an answer immediately. With another solutions like that, you are required to go to understand exactly how the API works. You need to fit it with some parameters. So yes, even when you reach amazing machine learning model, it's really important how do you expose it to the world? What's the interface look like? So that's kind of in a nutshell about ChatGPT as an example and connecting it with the ML product framework. I hope it makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. I think that it's almost most pure form of it. It's like, hey, let's say you had an amazing model that was just given to you. <laughs> like, now what? What do you do with that? You know, and that's where I think the product thing can really kicks in. I mean, you could argue a lot of these new companies built around those models are purely just like product ML product companies. Like the model is just given. How do you build a product around it? How do you derive end user value from that? How does observability fit into this, you know, kind of ML product framework? How does Aporia begin to collect like business metrics and fit that in? Or does, you know, Aporia live in the ML stack and then it's the PM's role to like take that and compare it to the business stack? How do you think about that going forward? So I like to think about Aporia as the mix panel for AI, right? So if you think about mix panel, this is the place for a product manager to get in and see who's using our product, how are they using it, where are we lacking and where do we need to develop new features or to get improved. So the same thing happened with observability and ML product. You should be, when it comes to starting a new ML product, you should be thinking with the end in mind. And we talked beforehand about measurements and KPIs and metrics. You should be able to measure them as your model, as your ML product is running in production. And this is kind of where Aporia fits into the picture. So our users, whether they're data scientists, ML engineers, or product managers, they can see what models are running currently in production what predictions they're making for users and how well they are performing. Now, not only that, they can track usage, they can track business KPIs and really make this connection, which a lot of times is very difficult to make it between the predictions the model is making in production to the bottom line business results. So this is where I see and we, we see our users using a port for. I love that you're kind of it's, this mixed panel analogy is great because it really shows that you're trying to break down this kind of ML silo of, yeah, we, you know, we have data scientists, they live over there, they build models over there, they deploy them to, you know, breaking that down. And hey, like ML is just like directly interconnected into our organization everywhere. And it's one of the many 
abilities we have to drive business value. And that's how, you know, data scientists think. That's how everyone in the org thinks. This has been great. I, I would love if you could give maybe like a tweet length takeaway. Like if someone's listening to this, they're, you know, explaining it to one of our friends, hey, you should go listen to this great podcast of Laren. What should they say? What's the, the takeaway that you think they should leave with? So the main takeaway, I think, is we as technical people, I'm, so, I'm an engineer. I like writing cool stuff. I like challenges. I like cool algorithms. But by the end of the day, we should be asking ourselves, what is the impact we're making? And what is the impact of what we're building? And can we answer this question? I think this is really, really crucial, Simba, I guess, also when you started feature form, you know, at the very beginning, you just want to build something really, really cool. But later on, you realize that you need really to connect this cool thing that you built with value to users. Machine learning in that sense is no different. I think that will be the takeaway. That's great. Thanks so much for joining me today. This has been a really, really great conversation. I love your kind of perspective on, I guess, ML in general and how it will change. And yeah, uh, we'll put this out soon and we'll put lots of the links that you mentioned in the summary below. Thank you, Simba. That has been fun for me.